in the text. However, the preposition should be translated as to, the words directed to King Lemuel. That this is how we should understand the first part of verse 1 is plain from what follows in the rest of the verse. The prophecy that his mother taught him. The verse makes use of Hebrew parallelism. Both parts of the verse say fundamentally the same thing, but they say it in two slightly different ways in order to drive home the point of the text. You'll find Hebrew parallelism throughout the whole last part of the chapter in the virtuous woman section beginning at verse 10. So, in light of the second part of verse 1, the prophecy that his mother taught him, we must understand the first part of verse 1 as the words that she spoke to Lemuel. The text contains this instruction to Lemuel, and by the way, that same preposition is used in verse 3 twice, and it's translated there as to or unto. Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways unto that which destroyeth kings. The words of the text were spoken to Lemuel by his mother, who is Lemuel. Lemuel is King Solomon, the human writer of most of the book of Proverbs. Lemuel's mother is Bathsheba, the wife of King David, who formerly had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. King Solomon is given three names in Holy Scripture. When he was born, he was called Solomon by David and Bathsheba. We read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, after the death, you will remember, of their first child, and went in unto her and lay with her. And she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. Solomon means peace. It's derived from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Solomon is the king of peace, whereas David, his father, had been a warring king, a king who had defeated all of the enemies surrounding Israel, establishing firmly the kingdom of Israel. Solomon was able to enjoy the fruits of his father David's warfare, and the kingdom enjoyed a time of peace and prosperity for the 40 years of his reign. Together, David and Solomon are a complete picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great king and ruler of his people, the one who not only defeats all of our enemies, but who also establishes us in the peace and prosperity of the gospel. Besides that name Solomon, he was at the time of his birth given a second name. And he was given that second name by Nathan the prophet. At the end of verse 24, after we read that he called his name Solomon, we read, and the Lord loved him. And then verse 25, 
And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet. And he, Nathan, called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. Jedediah just means loved of the Lord, of Jehovah. The Je part being a reference to Jehovah. Jedediah, beloved of Jehovah. Now in the text, Solomon is given a third name. He's given that name by his mother. But he's given that name by his mother under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. His third name is Lemuel. Lemuel simply means to or unto God. And there's that same preposition again. Unto or to. He is Lemuel because he is unto God. He is Lemuel because this is his calling. This is what his life is supposed to be. This is the witness that his life is to give in the midst of the world. He is marked out as one who is unto God. That name expresses the purpose of the godly instruction of all of the children of the church. In a way, all of our children are Lemuels because of the calling that we have, not only as parents, but as a congregation to bring up our children unto Jehovah God. In the good Reformed tradition of a school sermon towards the beginning of a new school year, I've made this sermon in order to underscore the important calling that we have as a covenant community in the instruction and upbringing of our children, not only in our homes, not only in the church, now in the public worship services, as well as in the catechism classes that have begun, but also in the Christian day schools to which we send our children, all with the purpose that our children may grow up to be unto Jehovah God. Tonight I call your attention to the words to Lemuel. Let's notice first of all that they were spoken by his mother. Secondly, that they were uttered according to prophecy. And thirdly, that they were directed to God's glory. The words of the text and the application of the text is especially to the mothers in the congregation tonight. To the mothers. For the words of this prophecy were spoken to Lemuel by his mother. The prophecy that his mother taught him. That does not mean, of course, that the word has nothing to say tonight to husbands and to fathers. It doesn't mean that the word tonight has no application to the unmarried, to those who are single, to those who are not yet married. There's all kinds of instruction in this word of God to us all to husbands and wives, but also to the members of the congregation. All kinds of instruction 
for those who have a heart for the covenant of God. Nonetheless, primarily the text tonight concerns and its instruction is directed to godly mothers in the church. First and foremost, to the mothers of the younger children in the church, to the mothers who are in the midst of the busyness of their lives in caring for the needs of their family, some with many children. But the text also includes the younger women, those not yet married who anticipate being married one day, even to the teenagers and to the girls in the congregation. The text is full of instruction. This is not the first mention in the book of Proverbs of the mother and the calling of the covenant mother in the church and in her family. There are a number of passages that bring up the calling of the godly mother in the book of Proverbs. Passages that underscore her calling with respect to her husband. Passages that underscore her calling with respect to her children. There are other passages in which the children are warned against despising the instruction of their mother, are warned against a wrong attitude towards their mother, misbehavior with respect to their mother. Among those passages in the book of Proverbs, already in the opening chapter of the book. Our text is in the last chapter, but already in the very first chapter. Verse 8, my son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. And then in the chapter immediately preceding our text, in chapter 30, verse 11, there is a generation that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. Verse 17, the eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out and the young eagles shall eat it. Nevertheless, what we find in our text is something unique in the book of Proverbs. For the calling of the mother is not brought in, but the godly mother is speaking in the words of the text. There isn't just instruction concerning the attitude and behavior of covenant children and young people towards their mother. But the mother herself is giving this instruction in the words of our text. The prophecy that his mother taught him. That makes our text in the whole of this last chapter of the book of Proverbs unique. The viewpoint of the book of Proverbs is primarily that of a godly covenant father as the head of his home and family giving instruction to his son and by implication also to his daughter. That's the perspective that prevails throughout the book of Proverbs. Over and over again, 
It is the Father who says, my son, my son, my son. But in our chapter, not the Father, but the godly mother is speaking. She is the one who addresses her son. She is the one who says, what my son and what the son of my womb and what the son of my vows. In a powerful way, the text underscores the important, the all-important calling of godly mothers in the church. It is true that in the family, the father, as the head of his home, is responsible for the instruction of his children. He is the one, primarily, who will give account to God in the day of the judgment concerning the instruction of his children. But that emphasis upon the role and calling of a godly father is not in any way to minimize the important role that a godly mother has in her home and family. The altogether vital calling that she fulfills in her home. There are exceptions. Not exceptions in the church. Certainly ought not to be those kinds of exceptions in the church. Because a woman disdains her calling to be either a wife or a mother wants nothing to do with motherhood and all of the demands upon her of motherhood, the sacrifice really of herself for the sake of her family and her children who is more interested in herself, her own pursuits, her own career, her own name and reputation, than she is interested in the care of children. Not those kinds of exceptions, but there are exceptions in the church the exceptions that God himself has made. There are those in the church who, although they desire to be married, even fervently pray to God that he will lead them to a spouse for God's own reasons and purposes does not bring them a husband that happens it also happens that there are those who are married who desire fervently to have children who pray earnestly to God for children to whom God for his own reasons does not give children. We who have children need to appreciate the heavy burden that this is, the grief that's often associated with this. We must be sensitive to those whom God puts in this situation. And yes, of course, we're convinced 
that the grace of God is sufficient even for this trial. But at the same time, we ought to be supportive and we ought to reach out to those whom God has put into this difficult set of circumstances. Nonetheless, ordinarily, it is God's will that the young women of the church marry and that they become the joyful mother of children. Because of their all-important calling in their home and with their children, the mothers of the church must be at home with their children when those children are young, especially when their children are young. Not dropping them off at the babysitter, not taking them to daycare, not leaving them to the care of the nanny while they go off to work or to the pursuits of their career. Clearly, the mother in Proverbs 31 is devoted to her family. Clearly, the mother of Proverbs 31, not only in the first part of the chapter, but in that portion that has to do with the virtuous woman considers her calling in her home to be her one and only calling. She values this calling. She's grateful to God for this calling, and she's devoted to carrying out to the best of her ability the calling in which God has set her. Sacrificially, she denies herself for the sake of her children. She does that out of love. Love for God and love for her children. That's the point of those rhetorical questions that she asks of her son in verse 2. What, my son? What, the son of my womb? And what, the son of my vows? All of those rhetorical questions are intended to drive home to her son, the care and the concern that she has for his well-being. The point of those rhetorical questions is to drive home to him her love for him, her fervent desire to see him grow up in the fear of the Lord. Her desire that he will love God and walk in God's ways. Everything in verse 2 is intended to underscore her love for her son. He is the son of her vows. Vows in the plural at the end of verse 2. That's significant. That's important. And that's why it's last in the verse. She, not just her husband, not just her son's father, she has spoken vows over her son. 
just as young parents, to gather not only the father, but the wife respond to the vows of holy baptism. These vows in the plural were the vows connected to the Old Testament administration of circumcision. She and her husband had presented their son for circumcision. Vows in the plural for at least two reasons. First, because the vow of covenant parents has not one, not two, but three important dimensions. And because of what is really a threefold vow, she speaks of vows in the plural, included in the one vow is the promise before God to give godly instruction. The promise before God to also show a godly and upright example and the promise before God to administer a loving discipline. The book of Proverbs has a great deal to say on all three aspects of the vow of covenant parents. A good deal to say on the importance of godly instruction. Train up a child in the way in which he should go. Underscoring the importance of a faithful, a consistent, a godly example and the importance of loving discipline that aims not to destroy the child, not to vent our anger upon our children, but which aims at their correction, restoring them to the right way, the way of God from which they have strayed. The words of this covenant mother spoken to Lemuel, her son, she uttered according to prophecy we read. That belongs to verse 1. The words to King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Now the word for prophecy in the text is a very striking word. It is a word that in fact means burden. A burden. A heavy, heavy weight. That's what the word means very often in the Old Testament scriptures. It means that in some contexts, literally. For example, in 2 Kings 5, verse 17, Naaman, the Syrian captain who was healed of his leprosy by the prophet Elisha, requested two mules' burden of earth to take back with him to Syria in order to erect an altar for the worship of the true God. The word there for burden, two mules burden of earth, is the very same word that's translated prophecy in our text. In Jeremiah 17, verse 21, the word is also found. There, the prophet is chiding the children of Judah for carrying burdens on the Sabbath day. They were prohibited 
from carrying burdens on the Sabbath day. But the same word that often refers to a literal physical burden is the word that refers to the burden of the word of God. The prophetic burden. And that's often the context in which the word occurs. The burden of such and such a prophet, the word of God that he spake to God's people. It's for that reason, the reference often to a prophetic burden that the translators have translated the word as prophecy in the text. And that's the correct translation. That is the reference. You must not think, however, of prophecy in the text too narrowly. You mustn't think of prophecy only as a specific revelation from God about some future event that happened, that was from time to time the prophetic burden. But you must also think of the entire word of God as the burden of prophecy. That's the idea here. Not prophecy in distinction from the historical sections of the Bible, in distinction from the Psalms, in distinction from the wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs, but the entire Old Testament word of God. And for us in the New Testament, the entire word of God as prophecy. It's all prophecy. It's all prophecy because it's all the word of God. It's all prophecy because no matter what book you are reading from, no matter what chapter, what verse, it is the word of God. And that's exactly the conviction that this mother, this covenant mother had with respect to the scripture. It's prophecy. It's prophecy from beginning to end. It's prophecy from Genesis 1 to the end of the last chapter of the book of Revelation. It's all prophecy because it's all the word of God. That's the standard. That's the content the stuff of the instruction that this covenant mother is concerned to give to her son. Concerned that her son will receive and hear and obey. It's all the word of God. That's the vow. That's what ties together all three aspects of the vow, the godly instruction, the example, the loving discipline. It all concerns the word of God. Teach them. See to it that they are taught the word of God. See to it that they are taught the word of God in your home. Take the time in the busyness of your everyday life to instruct them in the word of God in your home. Mothers, that's the emphasis in the text. Mothers, 
give this godly, this prophetic instruction to your children in the home, especially in those early, early years of their life in your home. This must also be the instruction of the Christian day schools to which we send our children to the instruction of the Levites in all the different cities of Israel in the Old Testament, in the synagogues of the late Old Testament and New Testament, and in our day in the Christian day school. See to it that in those schools, the instruction that they receive is instruction on the Word of God so that the Word of God is the authority for all the instruction that's given. And then, see to it that this is the case in the church of which you are members. See to it that that congregation is a true church of Jesus Christ where the prophetic word is honored as the very word of God. See to it that the instruction that's given on the Lord's Day from this pulpit in the catechism room on a Monday is instruction consistent with the prophetic word of God. Holy Scripture, the prophecy of Holy Scripture, that must be the standard and that must be the content of all the instruction that the children receive. This must govern your example. This must be the controlling basis for all the discipline that you administer. One very important part of that instruction is admonition. That's the way it is with earthly parents, and that's the way it is with God's instruction of us, his spiritual children. Significantly, what follows the text in verses 3 through 9 are words of admonition, exhortation, warning. In fact, the word taught him at the end of verse 1 of our text is often translated in the book of Proverbs as warned or admonished the form of the instruction that parents give is just as important as the content of the instruction. The form of the instruction must be admonition. It must be exhortation as is immediately the case following the text. Give not thy strength to women. That's an exhortation, an imperative, nor thy ways to them that destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, to drink wine, and so forth. Two particular warnings, wine and women. Not wine per se, as I pointed out when we read the scripture, nor certainly women per se. After all, the text is the word of a godly mother, but over much wine. A serious problem in our society 
today. Loose women. Women who are not interested in being godly wives and mothers, but are interested in themselves and their own carnal pleasure. Stay away from those kinds of women. Don't overdrink wine. In the end, the warning is not against wine or against women. Wine and women are not the great destroyer, destroyers of kings, but it's their own lusts that are the great destroyers of kings, their own wicked lusts, on account of which wine and women are a temptation. We ought to point out that verse 10 that begins the instruction on the virtuous woman and that extends from verse 10 to the end of the chapter is not in Proverbs 31 a second part of the chapter unrelated, disconnected to our text and to the opening section of the chapter. You must not understand verse 10 to the end to be the introduction of an entirely new thought, something entirely different, all right? We're done talking as a godly mother to her son about his calling. And we're going to talk now about the virtuous woman. That's not how the chapter fits together. But also in verse 10, to the end of the chapter, this godly mother is still talking. She's still giving instruction to her son. Listen to me, Lemuel. Listen to me in this all-important area of a wife and a mother for your children. Verse 10 to the end is an extended admonition which comes down simply to this Lemuel my son Mary in the Lord Mary a woman who is one with you in the faith of the gospel Mary a woman who will be a covenant mother to the children which God may be pleased to give you. Don't date. Don't court. Don't marry a woman of this world. Lemuel, marry a woman Who is like me, your mother, who will have the same care for your sons and daughters as I have for you. And the purpose of it all, the purpose of it all every aspect of the calling of this godly wife and mother is the glory of God. What motivates this godly mother? What must motivate godly covenant parents in devoting themselves to the instruction of their children paying the huge tuition bill in our Christian day schools. The purpose is the glory of God. The purpose is expressed in his name, Lemuel. 
His name means unto God. Unto God. The L at the end of his name is God. Elohim. Unto God. That's the purpose of it all. That's the goal that this godly mother has in view for her son. This is what she's aiming at in all of the instruction that she gives to him, in her attention to set before him a godly, a consistent example. This is the aim of the loving discipline that she has administered. This is the aim, boys and girls, of everything that your parents do in your education, in your upbringing. They're aiming at the glory of God in you and by you. They're concerned all the time, all the energy, all the dollars that they spend is that you will be a Lemuel unto God. What can be compared to that? What can be compared to that joy that covenant parents and grandparents have in this sin-cursed world, there are few enough joys, just enough, I think, sometimes to keep us from despair. But there's no greater joy than this to see our children and our grandchildren living unto God. Lemuel's. Then all the cause, all the sacrifice is worthwhile. This is the reason why Satan exerts himself so strenuously against our children, against our young people. He hates it when he sees them unto God. He hates that. And he will do everything that he can. Every possible temptation to turn you children, to turn you young people away from God and the glory of God to yourselves, to him. That really is the struggle of the Christian life. That this is the great purpose of our calling with respect to our children points out how utterly impossible in our own strength it is to realize this purpose in the children. We can do many things. We can't make them to be Lemuel's, to be unto God. We can't accomplish that. We can't accomplish that in ourselves. How in the world can we accomplish that in our children? We can't. We're dependent, utterly dependent upon God. But don't you see, that's the thing that causes us to look away from ourselves and to look to Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is the one of whom 
Solomon was the great type. We must cast ourselves upon him. We must look to him for the forgiveness of our sins and the sins of our children in not being unto God as we ought to be and we need to look to him for the strength of grace to be unto God. We cast ourselves upon him, his grace and spirit. More than anything else, this moves us to our knees. This gives us reason as parents and grandparents to pray, to pray for our children, to pray with our children. Do you love your children? Is this what you want for your children more than anything else? That we must pray, and we must pray without ceasing. God hears those prayers. He answers them. Not in every one of our children, head for head. And probably so that we will more appreciate the ones who do live unto God. But from among our children, he takes his children. From among our children, God is pleased to gather unto himself his own sons and daughters, children who already now in this life are unto him. Children who one day, along with us, their parents and their grandparents, will be perfectly and eternally unto God. Amen. Father in heaven, bless thy word as we've heard it tonight. We cast ourselves upon thee. Upon thee we are altogether dependent and not at all upon ourselves. And yet thou art pleased to use weak and sinful means such as us parents and grandparents and the other members of thy church. And so, O oh God, be pleased to use us so that the children of the church may grow up to be Lemuels unto thee, for Christ's sake. Amen.